as Terry introduced um, Brother Neil already this morning, um, I won't tell you a whole lot about uh, him. He'll do some of that as well. But I did want to echo a few things. Um, I, I, it is different, you know. Terry preaches for a long time, and uh, it's loud and good, and we enjoy it, and we love it. And this is going to be different. But here's the thing. I was reflecting um, earlier yesterday about, uh, about Neil and, and just old memories or whatever. And uh, I deduced that in my life, there has been three people that God has brought into my life um, as a shepherd, if you will, that when they speak, I listen. All right? Now, I'm not gonna, I don't always put into practice what they say. Guilty. However, there's, when they speak, I'm into it. I'm listening. One was my youth pastor, Alan Pointer. Another guy was uh, Bert Tippett from the Bible College. And then the third one is Brother Neil right here. So y'all give him your undivided attention. I know you're going to enjoy him. Make him welcome. Dr. Neil Gilliland. Bon, c'est une grande joie pour moi d'être ici, ici parmi vous ce matin de Louis le Seigneur ensemble. Vous voyez, il y a beaucoup de gens ici en Amérique et comme même en Afrique qui me demandaient la même question. Ils me demandaient pourquoi tu es là parce que c'est un peu bizarre, quoi. Et toujours, 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 j'ai dit la même chose. J'ai dit car Dieu a tellement aimé le monde, il a donné son Fils unique afin que tous les hommes, quiconque croit en lui, il ne mieux pas, mais qu'il ait la vie éternelle. Amen. Amen. That Honey in the Rock song, you need little white hankies for everybody to... <laughs> Let me tell you what I said and why I said it, okay? If, I don't know if I can remember what I said. I said this. It's such a joy for me to be here with you to worship together. That music is great. I want to be a bass. Bass players are just cool, aren't they? <laughs> but I want to... Uh, uh, bass... Anyway. So I said... There were a lot of people in Africa and in America who always asked me the same question. Why would you go there? I mean, for Americans, why would you leave here and go to that place? And the Africans go, why would you leave that? We're trying to get there. You know, why would you do that? And I always, 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 toujours, toujours said the same thing. I said, because God so loved the world that he gave. And I like it in French better. It says... He gave son fils unique, his unique son, the only one like him, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That's why we go. And let me tell you why I said it. One of the reasons is in 1980, I traveled around our denomination raising money to go to the mission field. The first thing they did was send me to French language school. I just want you to know you got your money's worth. <laughs> I learned to... If, if any of you are French speakers, I apologize because my French is pretty pathetic. But anyway, sounded good to you, didn't it? Say yes. Thank you very much. And the second reason is this, and I'm glad to see some little ones in the crowd. When I was a little boy, I had a great aunt. Her name was Bessie Neely. She was a missionary in Cuba with Mom and Pop Willie. And she would come home and she would sing songs in Spanish and stuff. And when I was a little guy, I remember saying, I'm not sure what she does, but one day when I get big, I want to do what Aunt Bessie did and go to teach and to, to share the gospel with people who have never heard. I'm think, or let me see your hand if you're on the Japan team. Anybody in here that's on the Japan? I 
let me say in French, je suis saisi par la jalousie. I'm seized with jealousy. Uh, you're going you're gonna to fall in love with the kindest people ever. Uh, but anyway, well, I could talk about missions forever uh, because that's what I've done most of my life and uh, I enjoy it. But by training, uh, this morning's not going to be a sermon per se. Uh, I hope that's okay. By the way, we had a wonderful time on the retreat. There's a few of the retreat folks in here. Um, if the rest of you are like that bunch, you need help. <laughs> I'm a, by training, I'm a psychologist. They were, they're diagnosable. <laughs> These were a bunch of crazy people. And if the rest of you are like that, I'm going, you will be at the top of my prayer list. I'm just kidding. It was a wonderful time other than the speaker. It was great. But they have asked me, or Terry asked me, if I would share this morning about the importance of family. Uh, I will be honest. And by the way, if you were on the retreat, I want to apologize in advance. You're going to get a Reader's Digest version, kind of, of the retreat this morning. But... Uh, and I probably should say, I, if I'm really bad, somebody raise their hand, I'm going to do something, because this, in the first service, I was really bad. I know when I'm bad, and I was bad in the first service. So hopefully I'll be better this time. But uh, you, you don't get very far into the, into the book. By the way, do you appreciate the book? No, you do not. I'm just telling you, you don't. Let me... You're going to hear about a zillion stories, but Clive Carver, which probably doesn't ring a bell for any of you, but he was the director of World Relief, one of the largest humanitarian organizations in the world. He had flown to southern Sudan, which was one of the most desolate countries in the world. It's overwrought with wars and trouble now, but he had flown there because they were going to ship grain and rice and stuff into the villages and he they were in a little plane and they would fly him to village to village to meet some of the people and tell them and so he he flew into this one village and he came back to the plane he said please get me take me somewhere else he said i can't take it anymore because he said i walked through the lanes of that village and literally was watching little babies die of starvation and he said i just he said can we go somewhere so they took him to this other village they land with his translators, he walked into that village, and he couldn't find anybody. There was nobody there. Finally, he got way to the edge of the village, and there was a big group of people under one of a big baobab trees. Baobab trees are those that look like they're upside down, if you ever watch National Geographic. They were all there, and they, he walked up to the edge, and they asked a lady, they said, what are you doing? She said, we're worshiping Jesus. Do you know him? He goes, well, yeah, I came from America. We're about to, we're going to bring you grain to eat and grain that you can plant because we know the famine. He said, she goes, you're from America. He said, yeah, we're from churches that are sending all this stuff. She goes, we've heard, we've heard that there's a book. Have you ever seen one? He said, uh, I didn't want to tell her I probably have 30 at my house. He said, yeah, she, go, she goes, could you bring us a, a book? And he said, 
well, we're bringing you r- grain so you can. He said, no, can you just bring us? He said, I'll bring you as, as much, many as I can. He found a translation that they would understand, and he brought several cases of the book. He said he went back a year later to a baptism service. They were baptizing a thousand people because they got the book. You, we don't appreciate the book. By the way, they were sprinkling them. Uh, it had nothing to do with theology, but everything to do with crocodiles in the river. <laughs> I'm saying if the crocodiles in the river sprinkle me, I'll take care of the rest later. <laughs> but you don't have to go very far in this book till you start reading about the family, right? You you get just you, you know uh, the ch- first chapter of. Uh, Genesis, it talks about the creation of the world. You get to the second chapter, now it's a husband and a wife. You get to the third chapter, they mess up. You get to the fourth chapter, that's not very far in. And it says that Eve bore two sons, Cain and Abel. And it's the first time you see God's formation of the first social unit called the family. From there, by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you're talking about one of just one family. The rest of Genesis is really about one family, Abraham and his family. I always love the story of Abraham. Don't you remember God told him to go? And he was an old man. There he is in his walker. Where are you going, Abraham? I don't know. God just said go. That's all I know. By the way, God's still saying that. He's saying, go. I, I, I hope you understand. He did not say, sit ye there and wait ye there for them to come unto thee so you can preach unto them. Did he? Uh, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea of church. Church is, is about us learning and growing so that we can take the gospel out there. I, I'm not opposed to people getting saved in church. I just don't see that in here very much. I'm glad when people get saved. Trust me, I'm thankful. But I'm not sure that's the model. The model is for us to be strengthened and encouraged. That's what this is all about, so that you can take the gospel out into the world. But anyway, so we get to Abraham. By the time Genesis is finished, we move into Exodus, which is not about just this one family, but it's about the nation of Israel. And a whole bunch of families, we know their story, right? It's the, the spiritual story that oscillates up and down. They're, they're in love with God. They're not in love with God. They're in love with God. We want to be really critical of them, but we're not much better. We follow them all the way through the Old Testament until you get to the, the Italian prophet Malachi. Come on, folks. Don't be like that first crowd. That was funny, and you didn't laugh. <laughs> it's bad when you have to, you know, roll your own laughter. Anyway, that was rolling. Anyway, and then God's voice stopped for the next 400 years. Until the angel Gabriel come to this little virgin girl and said, you're going to have a baby. By the way, 
all through the Old Testament, you know what they were looking? They, were, they kept looking for the coming Messiah. They looked for him for centuries. They couldn't wait. I don't know what they were expecting, but I think I do. I think they were expecting this great hero to come galloping in to save the day. I don't think they expected him to come. Can I put it this way? As a baby into a family. What an interesting way for God to introduce our Redeemer. By the way, I, uh, I love the Christmas story. I read it about at least once a month, if not more. I just love that story. And my favorite part of the story is the old priest Simeon. You may remember that part of the story? They had taken Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. Simeon, uh, an, the Lord had appeared unto Simeon, and he said this, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's anointed, until you see the Messiah. Let me put that in context for you. What if God came to you and said, you're not going to die, you're not going to die until the Lord comes back? Do you think you'd live differently? I think I'd wake up every morning looking to the east. I think every time I saw this weird storm coming in and the clouds are looking funky, I'm going, oh, this might be it, this might be it. That's, that's what Simeon's life. And can you imagine? I, I, I like to imagine this scene in the temple. He was in the temple going through his daily routines. He got there early in the morning. The mist was just rising. The shadows were long. And he sees this silhouette of this young couple coming. And they're holding a baby. And something, something in Simeon's heart seized. And he said, that's him. That's him. Can you imagine? I get goosebumps thinking about it. Can you imagine? And he looked. He, he said, can I hold him? Can I just hold her? And he looked into the face of his Redeemer that came into a little family, a, an ordinary family, a carpenter and a young girl. If God put that much emphasis on family, shouldn't we? I don't think it's a secret that our society is crumbling around us. And it's crumbling around us because marriages and families are falling apart. And I think we ought to be determined that we're going to do something about it. I told the couples there are two important words in marriage. What were they? Intentional and compromise. I think we have to be intentional. So what I want to do this morning, again, this is not very sermonic, but I want to give you seven principles of how to build a resilient family or a family that thrives. I want your families to be really, really strong because I may say this at the end too. This church will only be as strong as your marriages are and as strong as your families are. By the way, folks, I spit a lot. 
So if you have something to hold up, you Here's the first principle. We're going to be committed. We're going to be committed to be intentional about having a strong marriage and a strong family. We're going to be committed to God. Uh, let me read. In Deuteronomy, and most of you know this, uh, in Deuteronomy 6, oh, that's Genesis. Uh, that won't help us, will it? Deuteronomy 6, oh, I better put my glasses on. I don't really need them, but they make me look smart. Don't I look smart? And as a psychologist, I can say, you hate your mother. Um, <laughs> but it says this, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk uh, of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hands. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your gate, your house, and on your gates. That is... Everywhere, everything you do, God has to be the center of that. Especially your family. I love to go in homes where I see Scripture everywhere. I was telling them, my wife does crazy things. She takes dead weeds and puts them on the wall and puts a Scripture in it. I bought her a weed eater so she can make her own. You know, but uh, I ha in my office in Africa, I had two little, I had a plaque on, and my, on my desk that every parent should have, and it said, I said maybe, and that's final. Are you with me? Come on. It's about teeth trick time. I do teeth tricks if things get slow. <laughs> Did I... I didn't tell you guys this at the retreat, but remember I did the teeth trick where I stuck them up? I had a, an adult lady ask me how I did that, and I said, well, I've got double-jointed teeth. <laughs> and she said, do you really? <laughs> I did not correct her. <laughs> but there is this commitment. Oh, the, the other plaque in my office said, N'inquiète de rien, be anxious for nothing. Uh, we live in a society where anxiety is rampant. I work with teenagers. I was with a group, at, actually with Truth and Peace, and I was in a van. I thought I was in the senior citizen's van. All they talked about was the medications they were on. And these are a bunch of teen great teenagers. And I'm a psychologist. I understand some people have to have medication. I get that but we live in a very anxiety-provoking society. I said this at the retreat. Let me, we're going to do a test here, okay? How many of you trust God? Raise your hand if you trust God. Ooh. How many of you worry? One of those is not true. I'm sorry. I hate to be the bearer of truth, we can handle anything but truth. If we're going to trust anybody, we've got to trust God. Don't trust Neil. 
because I'll blow it. But we have to be intentionally committed that we're going to trust God because the bad's going to come. So we have to trust God, and we have to teach it to our children every day, no matter what you're doing. You articulate biblical principles all through life. You don't wait just for the church to do that. It's the whole idea behind our program called D6, but it is you're with your kids, with your family. Husbands are with your wife. Then husbands, I'm going to say this later, I'm going to say it now, you are to be the leader of your home. And I don't think it has anything with you to do about you paying bills or making decisions or being the final word. I think it has everything to do with you being the spiritual leader of your home. And it's your job. And by the way, every lady I've ever talked to said the number one thing she wants from her husband is for him to be the spiritual leader of our home. Second, second thing is uh, not only are we meet, uh, be committed or very intentional about doing this family thing as a family, but we need to celebrate each other. We talked a lot about this at the retreat. Uh, we're interesting people, aren't we? Look at me. I am the epitome of normality. I'm the only normal person in this world. The rest of you are weird. Right? Isn't that the way we think? We think we're the ones that are normal. And everybody should be like us. The beautiful thing is God created all of us just to be who we are. I, the first place I saw this this statement was on a gasoline station marquee down by Vanderbilt University. Why they put this on there, I don't know, but I almost pulled the car over. It said this, just be yourself, everybody else is taken. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get better version of yourself, but just be you. I wish I could remember the whole Dr. Zeus, you're your... You're the most you can be or something like that. Some of you Dr. Zeus fans will remember that. Here's what the scripture, Psalm 139. I love it. We talked about it at the retreat. I won't go into all the details, but I just love it because it said he knitted me together in my mother's womb. I put a little note beside in my Bible. I think you missed a stitch. But he knitted me together. <laughs> My own mom, not, not somebody else, my mom said I was the ugliest baby she had ever seen. <laughs> my own mom said that. You know you're starting off bad when your mom says you are the... I said, Mom. She goes, well, you should have seen you. You look, look like a lizard. <laughs> I said, Mom, please, come on. She took me to the counselor. He made me lay on my stomach. He didn't want to look at me either. You know all this. I went to the beach. The waves wouldn't come in. It was. But he created you just the way he did. I, I, I'll be honest. I struggled with that a lot. Still do. I, I, I get envious of guys like Tanner who can do everything. And I got nothing. 
When I was in high school, I wanted to be an athlete. Look at me. <laughs> I used to be skinny. I bulked up. I was this tall and weighed 170 pounds less than I do now. I wanted to play football. My brother was the star of the team, has a trophy about this high. I got a trophy for being on the honor roll in the eighth grade. It's still on my shelf. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> but they put Gilliland on my jersey. It went around three times. I was a yard marker for two seasons, but that was My wife would come to bed and she'd go, I know you're in here. I just, I didn't, I didn't like the way I looked. I was the president of the nerd society of my high school. I didn't date because I didn't want a girl stuck with the nerd. My job, my brother was the handsome guy. He was the athlete, the handsome guy. My job was to take the notes from the girls to my brother, always wishing one of them would have been for me. So I'm just telling you, I struggled with the way God knitted me together. But then I read, this is what he said, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen to this. What, when, when you read about fear in the Bible, it's not like God's about to zap me. It is God, it is this sense of awe and reverence. When we talk about we should fear God, it's we should have this awe and reverence. I'm glad you sang that one song. I think we, one of the troubles with the church today is we've made God so much our friend that we forgot how glorious and majestic and awe-inspiring he is. And I think we under, I just, one of the things I like about high church with lots of liturgy is they really worship the allness of God. But he said that when he was knitting me together in my mother's womb, he went, oh, look at that. He's ugly, but look at that. That's what I just did. That's wonderful. God said that about me. I don't care what you say about me. That's what he said about me. And guess what? He said the same thing about you. Every one of you. I used to do a lecture, and I went much more into detail about that self-image concept to young people. But what I noticed was the leaders would sit in the back and cry because they felt they grew up their whole lives feeling like nobody. I know Terry has talked about it a lot. But in John 4, he talks about the woman at the well. I think she had two problems. One, it was because of who she was. She had that image because she said, why is it that you being a Jew would ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? That is, why is it that you being a somebody would ask me, but nobody, for something to drink? And whoo, I'm running out of time quick. But <laughs> you're not going anywhere. By the way, it wasn't just that she felt like a nobody. He also said this. I wish we could see the emotion in the passage, but he says, go get your husband. I don't think she felt very good about that question. She said, well, I don't really have a husband. And in the Neil's incredible version, he said, you got that right, honey. 
you've had five and the guy you're with now is not your husband. It wasn't just because of who she was, it was because of what she'd done. Any of you ever felt like nobodies because of your past? Listen, there's no future in the past. When you come under the blood of Christ, but did you know there's something you can do better than God? Heresy. Yes, there's something you can do better than God. You remember. He said, when you, when you confess your sins, he takes them as far as the east is from the west, and he, and he remembers them no more. When I stand before God, I'm going, don't you remember? Nope. I don't remember that. We do. And sometimes we struggle with our faith because of what we've done in our past. I've, I've got to hurry. I'm sorry. I'm talking too much. So it is making a commitment of being intentional about family. It is about celebration of each other. It is about communication. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, the scripture says. But you need to communicate. One of the best ways to do that is at supper or at least one meal a week together. I think we've gotten away from that. Uh, some families I know have a basket. They put their cell phone in the basket before they go sit at the table. As I was growing up, I grew up in this little tiny house. I mean, it was, you put the key in the front door, knock out the back window. It was, I mean, we had to go outside just to change our mind. The mice were humped back. Anyway, it was the little house, but we always had at least one meal together every day. And you know what we did? We talked about life. The other thing we did, we sat in the backyard and followed the shade of the big sycamore tree on lawn chairs all evening and talked about life. Mom and dad are gone now. They've sold the house and uh, I don't get to do that anymore. And I miss that. But I wanna have the same thing for my family. I wanna be able to sit down and talk about life. It is communication. I told the group this weekend, 80 to 85% of your communication is nonverbal. I can say a whole lot to you and never say a word. I could give long illustrations, but I need, it says four minutes and 21 seconds. So, uh, The fourth thing, we didn't talk about this at the retreat. You want to have a strong family? Have lots of rituals. Uh, Emil Durkheim, who is one of the founders of American sociology, said this. The greater the amount of ritual in a society or a social unit, the greater the amount of solidarity. That is, the more rituals you have, the stronger you're going to be. Uh, I can tell you when you feel the closest to each other in this church. Let me tell you when it is. When you have communion. Don't you remember? I think Jesus understood this pr uh, principle before Emil Durkheim did. He said, whatever you do, do all in remembrance of me, right? If you look at the nation of Israel, they had all kinds of rituals, most of which were done in the home. 
So establish rituals. And by the way, some of the best ones don't have to make sense. I was talking about this to a group of students once, and one of the students says, oh gosh, that makes sense, because on Christmas, we would open our presents, clean up all the paper, put the presents back under the tree, and go to the kitchen and play Monopoly. I go, why? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> it's just what we did. And he said, that's when I felt the closest to my family. Let me see your hand if you're over 60. It's okay, I am. I'm way beyond. Okay. I know what you had to eat in school on Fridays, right? What did you have? Huh? No, oh, you had a sack lunch. Yeah, you ate fish. Why did you eat fish on Friday? Because of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church had this ritual that you were not allowed to eat meat on Friday, and fish wasn't a meat. I think it had something to do with St. Peter being a fisherman or something. Ooh, I almost lost us. Um, I was looking at you. Um, she's going, what did I do? Um, the rest of you had pizza and french fries, right, on Fridays. That was true until the mid-60s when Vatican II happened. And what Vatican II said was, you can do away with the rituals. They didn't have to use Latin in the Mass anymore. I took Latin in high school. I can still say the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Pater noster quies in calis, sanctificator nomen tu. You know, if they need a new pope, watch for the smoke. Um, But Vatican II said you can do away with the rituals. I remember we had a Catholic family in our community. They were so excited. We can have bologna today. At that, until then, the Catholic Church was a powerful entity in America. After that, you saw a major decline in their power and influence because they did away with the ritual. You want to have a strong family, have rituals. Uh, you've probably heard the old story about... Uh, uh, a girl was uh, fixing uh, the New Year's ham, and she cut the end of the ham off. And her husband said, why do you do that? And she goes, I don't know. That's what mom always did. So she went and asked her mom, why do you cut the end of the ham off? She goes, because that's what my mom did. So she went to her grandma and said, Grandma, why did you cut the end of the ham off? She goes, because that's what my mom did. She goes, well, what? why did your mom... The pan that her great-grandma used was too small for the ham, so she always cut the end off, and it became a tradition. It doesn't matter what the meaning is, and most of our rituals are around the holidays, right? Why do we eat turkey on Thanksgiving? I, my brother and I always try to get mom to fix liver. We like liver a lot better than turkey. I, I see your faces. I will pray for you. It's, uh, we have rituals about putting children to bed. We have rituals, just make rituals and you're going to make your family tighter. Make them up, make new it. One of my wife and I's rituals is on Christmas Day, we always go to a movie. I know, I'm free will Baptist. And you're not supposed to go to the talking picture show. <laughs> but we do. So, uh, the fifth thing is 
you got to model spiritual health. We talked a lot about this in the last session at the retreat. And the, the key, I really think, to the Christian life is the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. If you want people to like you, live by the fruit of the Spirit. Um, teenagers, if you want to be popular, just live the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I have to do these things or I can't remember them. Here's, here's the difficult part, though, when it comes to your family. The hardest place to live out the fruit of the Spirit is at your house. You do really well when you come here, right? I see your faces. You, on the way to church, you've been fussing like cats and dogs. And then you go, good to see you, Sister Betty. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. I can tell you, I've worked at our colleges. I've had students who sat in my office and say, Dad and Mom were great at church. They were horrible at home, and some of those are pastor's kids. You need to be the same at home as you are here. I, I told them at the retreat, told them in the first service, I had a great compliment of your pastor his son who I go to church with in Nashville he said this my dad is exactly the way he is at church he's exactly that way at home what a great compliment but it's hard uh, I pointed out at the retreat and I'm going to point it out here I want you to notice what was not on the list Grumpy. Go to Galatians 5. And by the way, I take that from uh, Colossians 3, which says, uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, right? About time we got to that one. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But be right before that, there's this Reader's Digest version of the fruit of the Spirit. And... If you lived out to the fruit of the Spirit, whatever it means for her to submit to you, she has no problem doing that. Whatever it if ladies, if you live by the fruit of the Spirit, it, he has no problem loving you like Christ loved the church. And grumpy's not on that list. If you're a grump pot, get over yourself. I, I love, one of my, the joys of my life is to go and be in a huge crowd. Now, some of you are going to hate me for this probably, but I graduated from Ohio State. I'm a huge Buckeye fan. And every year, I get to go to one game, and there's 100,000 people in the stadium. I, it's, I just love that. Because, and here's one of the, there's always this moment every time I go, I look around, a hundred thousand people and I go who in the world do I think I am all these people have families and problems and all kind and I think mine are so important there's just this moment because because of that I'm saying I'm not going to be a grump pot 
I'm not going to be grumpy. And somebody, well, that's just the way he is. Well, get over the way you are. Or you don't know what's going on in my life. If you knew what was going on in my life, I'm sorry, grumpy's still not on the list. And I'm committed not to be a grumpy old man. Don't ask my wife if I am or not. Actually, when I get grumpy, I just get quiet. Sixth thing is this, that you're going to have coping skills. That is, you've got to be committed to know that whatever's going on, you're going to make it through. Right? Some of you older folks, I don't know who's the oldest person in here, but I will tell you, a lot of them have, my parents, mom was almost 94, dad was almost 99 when he died. They had lived through two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Great Depression. They knew what it meant to go through some tough things. But they also knew what it meant that we will make it. Your marriage will go through some hard things, but you can make it, I promise. And here's why. If you're a follower of Christ, he said, I will be with you even to the end of the world. Right? I'm going to be with you. And if he's with you, everything's okay. Or it should be. When I was little, as long as mom was there, everything was okay. I'm just saying, as long as God's there, everything's okay. I won't make, I won't make this story too long. But when we went away to language school, we had just been there maybe a month. We could say, uh, we were very fluent by that time. We could say bonjour. Actually, we could say bonjour. <laughs> and my wife's retinas detached, and she had to have surgery, or they told her she was going to go blind. We ended up in a hospital two hours from the closest people we knew. We just barely knew those people. Our missionaries were another five or six hours away. I lied through my teeth because our missionaries said, do we need to come? Uh, I go, no, we're fine. That was a lie. We weren't fine. I didn't know enough. I couldn't even go out and get something to eat because I didn't know how to do that. So I would eat what my wife didn't eat on her tray, although one of the little... Um, hospital worker she found out what I was going to do and she would find some a patient who wasn't eating their meal and would bring me their meal and she goes um, but they took my wife to surgery we were in the hospital for 15 days I stayed with her the whole time uh, just before then by the way I was doing my quiet time in the book of John and I came to this verse in chapter 11 verse 35 that says Jesus wept and I don't know why. It's one of those moments when Scripture kind of stuck out and bold. Some of you have had those, up, those situations. Anyway, we're in the hospital. They take her to surgery. She was up there for five or six hours. I thought she would never come back. Both eyes were patched. She was very sick and lots of pain. And uh, she eventually threw up in her bed. And I walked down the hall, and I grabbed a nurse by the arm, and I brought her back down the hall. And this is what I said to her. And so they started changing my wife's bed, and she, she was so sick, and they were being incredibly rough. And finally she rolled over, and she said, Neil, would you please tell him to quit? Listen, folks, with all my heart, I wanted to say, please be gentle. 
don't hurt this girl that I love more than anybody in the world. But I couldn't. I didn't know. I could now. But I, at that moment, I didn't know how. I did the most manly thing I did. I leaned up against a wall and I started crying. And when I was crying, I thought about John eleven thirty five. That Jesus wept and, and he cared about a skinny little boy and a little girl at that time in France. And can I tell you something? His presence so invaded that room, it was like I could reach out and hold his hand. I've never had that happen since, but it was so real. You see, the point is you have to have the determination because God is going to go with us no matter what. We will get through this, and we will. Uh, so it's those coping skills. The last thing is this, and this is the one I really hope you put into practice. It's what I call... Uh, outside resources, and here's what I mean by that. Every young couple, every young person should have some gray hairs in their life. And older folks, you should have some younger people in your life. Why do I say that? Well, I say that based on uh, based on the book of Titus. Remember what Paul said in Titus? I don't know how he pulled this off. I will put it in my version. He said, listen, after church, I want all the old ladies to come up front. You can read it in Titus. Now, if Terry did that next week, I don't know which one of you would come. But this is what he said to them. You are to teach the younger women. Right? Remember that? And what were they to teach them? They were to teach them how to love their husbands and how to love their children. Things that we think are natural. By the way, I think by implication, the same is true for men. That we are to teach the younger ones. I am standing here today because of some older men in my church who took a bunch of little uh, 10 and 11 year old boys under their wing and did all kinds of stuff with us. Anytime there was a, a work done at the church, they always made sure we were there. We were in the way. They would take us camping. The first Sunday school class I taught, I was 12, and I taught the oldest people in the church. Because at our church, they Here's how they selected Sunday school. The class would vote for a Sunday school teacher. They elected somebody, and he chose an assistant. Pappy O'Dell chose me as his assistant, and he was sick the entire year, so I had to teach. It was easy, because it was all the old folks, and I'd read the verse, and I'd go, what do you think about that? After they got done talking, I'd go, well, let's read the next verse. But it helped me stand in front of people. They poured their lives into me. It's your job. Older folks, invite some of the young couples to your house for supper. Young folks, if they don't, invite yourself to their house. They would love to cook for you, right? And, and just say, how did you do this? How did you make it? Pour into each other's lives. 
that's what the book, if you want to have strong families, we are not in this alone. Again, if your church is like that group that came to the retreat, you guys are doing well because uh, you're responsible for each other. Did you know that? You're here to help each other. This is not a solo journey. When somebody's hurting, you need to hurt with them. When somebody's rejoicing, you should rejoice with them. Well, I'm not sure any of this made much sense, but it's been such a joy uh, to be here, and you've been so very kind. But I'm going to pray that God will make your marriages and your families so strong that the people in this community will say, I don't know what's going on over there, but I want to be a part of that. Will you pray with me? Father, I realize that uh, my voice is sort of like a flickering candle, but yours is like a roaring fire. And so I pray that you will consume us, that you will uh, speak to our hearts in tones that we hear very clearly, and that as we walk away, we'll walk away closer to you, and that we'll be committed to this whole idea of family. And so I lay us all at your feet and trust that you will respond as you always do in ways that give you glory. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon Playback Podcast from Connect Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Connect Church has two worship services on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 10.30. We sincerely hope you'll visit. For more information and details, or if you have any questions you'd like answered, please visit our website at www.triconnect.church. Again, that's www.triconnect.church.